overcoming anxiety. Let's get a good picture to get us started. So it's 3 a.m. or something like that. I, I don't exactly remember. I'm mountain biking up across the south face of Mount Ashland in southern Oregon. I was taking my third turn as a team member in a 24-hour mountain bike race. My turn had started unexpectedly about 35 minutes ago when my other team member decided he couldn't go because he was cramping too badly. So I grabbed my headlamp, jumped on my bike, and started the initial climb, which was a grueling climb of about 1,400 feet in elevation up the south side of the mountain toward the east. It was incredibly technical with all kinds of rock structure to ride, tight sections through crowding trees and bushes. Anyways, I'm crushing this climb. I'm showing that trail who's boss. I'm about halfway up and my headlamp goes out. Here I am at approximately 3 a.m. in the absolute pitchest black dark of the night you can imagine. Every couple pedals, I found myself almost over the handlebars by some rocks I couldn't see or banging into a tree on the side of the trail or literally sliding off the trail down an embankment. Like it was debilitating. And before I knew it, it was all I could do to walk my bike up this trail. And even walking my bike up this trail was difficult. All of a sudden, here's why I'm telling this story. All of a sudden, just like that, everything that I had once perceived as adventure was now perceived as threat. Everything that was once an exciting challenge for me to overcome was now dangerous. And isn't this a true picture of anxiety? A flood of cortisol and adrenaline to the brain is all it takes and what was previously perceived as adventure is now perceived as dangerous. The parties, the trying new things, new foods, new shows, whatever, all, all the things that are the adventure of life, it's just now it's dangerous. They didn't used to be fear-inducing, but now they are. The challenges at work, you used to take them on with gusto, but now they just seem like threats looming that can be the end of your career. Well, if you hang on a few minutes, you'll get to hear what happened next when I was on that mountain in the middle of the night. But first, I have to say this. Today, we're looking and we're talking about a spiritual slash cognitive intervention when it comes to overcoming anxiety. And I want you to know, I am not offering trite words or over-spiritualized platitudes as a pastor who just sits in his office and studies the Bible and prays all day, no anxiety, you need to know this. Me and anxiety, you know, this brain right here, it's not a terrible one, it's pretty decent in many respects, but it loves to overproduce cortisol and adrenaline. And I've had to learn to manage it. Those two God-given neurotransmitters that grab you by the shoulders and look you in the eye and they say, prepare for action, rise to the occasion, let's move, you've got a mountain to climb. Those two really important neurotransmitters that are gifts to our brains that 
help us do great things and help us accomplish big tasks and solve big problems. Well, in excess or out of place, they can be the ones that cause some serious problems. And I've been there dealing with the problems of the excess or out of place cortisol and adrenaline. I know days of debilitatingly racing thoughts, weeks of pushing myself too far and allowing floods of those neurotransmitters to dictate my behavior. And while I'll share just a bit of my story towards the end of this message, you should know I've been there. The panic attacks, the needing to trust a doctor when he told me the benefits of a course of treatment with an SSRI, the needing to trust a therapist as she walked me through the, the derealization that can happen during prolonged periods of your brain taking on too much cortisol and adrenaline. And I know what it means to cling to, like my life depended on it, truth about who I am and why I'm alive, truth about who my heavenly father is, and truth about how my story ends as revealed in the words of these texts. And I want you to know that. So let's dig into it today. Today, I'm reading from the Gospel of Matthew in chapter 4. It's a funky little passage that reveals, as we look closely, it reveals the core truth that today's entire message is based on. Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 17 says this. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah. Land of Zebulun and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. From that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. So first, notice this. Jesus is presented as the dawn. The image is of the night's darkness. And then the break of day. It's an image of illumination. And illumination is a big deal because illumination allows us to see. It's powerful. Illumination is that moment when what we could not see becomes visible and nothing is ever the same. It's an experience that oftentimes changes everything and brings new life. That night I spent trying to ride the climb across the south face of Mount Ashland was awful. I spent more time getting knocked off the trail than I spent on it. And like I said before, what had previously been perceived as adventure, I was now perceiving as threat. What I had previously taken on as an exciting challenge to overcome, I was now enduring barely this experience as something dangerous. It was a dark time. Pun intended. But on that trail, 
the most amazing thing happened. Just as I crested the peak of this climb, having arrived at the turn that, that sends me eastward on the east side of the mountain, I was exhausted, I was frustrated, I was fed up, but I came up out of the south side of the mountain climb, turned onto the east face, and light breaks. I see dawn. The sun comes up. And the entire countryside east of the mountain became illuminated. The trail that lay before me is now illuminated. The stumps and the boulders and the roots that were crushing my spirit, they are now illuminated. I could see and now I could ride. I could let it rip down the downhill side of this mountain and the adventure can continue. Look, the illumination gave me the ability to perceive what I could not before. And as a result of the illumination, I could think differently and I could live differently. Well, here, Matthew is presenting Jesus as the one who will illuminate things that humanity had previously been unable to perceive. Matthew is presenting Jesus as the one who will illuminate things that humanity had previously been unable to perceive. And that's observation number one. Here's observation number two. Check out what Jesus says immediately after his introduction as the illuminating dawn. He says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The word for repent that Jesus actually uses here is the Greek word metanoi which means to think differently. And so what we have is this imagery of light breaking at dawn, an illumination that enables new sight. And then immediately Jesus saying, it's time to think differently. So here's something true. A principle that this entire message is based on. An illumination will result in new thinking and consequently new living. An illumination will result in new thinking. And this is, this is so important because as we've said multiple times during this series, our lives are always moving in the direction of our strongest thoughts. And many of us, we need a new set of strongest thoughts to set the direction for where our lives are moving. We need an illumination that will result in new thinking. And this is Jesus. This is how Jesus is being presented. Matthew is saying Jesus is the one who will illuminate new things that humanity had previously been unable to perceive. So the question is this, what are those new things that have been illuminated by Jesus? So the question is, what are those things that have been illuminated by Jesus? What are those things that humanity can now perceive because, because of Jesus? And so I want to share quickly five that are most important, although I think I'm only going to be able to dig into two of them in depth. Number one, Jesus illuminated the generosity of the Father. Jesus illuminated the overwhelming generosity of God. And, and how important is this to be able to perceive a generous God especially for those of us whose anxieties are all wrapped up in wondering if we'll have enough. Like here's the old thought that guided our thinking. Resources are few and far between. If you're going to have enough, you have to get there first. You have to fight for it. You have to defend your resources. Well, after Jesus is presented 
as the dawn, and after he proclaims his charge to repent for the kingdom of heaven is near, the next thing Matthew records him doing is calling his first two disciples to follow him. And while Matthew doesn't share the details of this event, Luke does in his gospel. And it's a picture of Jesus illuminating the overwhelming generosity of God. The story goes that Jesus shows up on the shore where Simon Peter and Andrew were packing their things after getting skunked out on the lake. All night fishing, no catch, zero fish. And this is not good because no catch means no income. No catch means no lunch. And I wonder how much anxiety Peter and Andrew were feeling right then, how anxious they were about coming home to their hungry families with nothing. Well, Jesus shows up and simply tells them to go back out and let their nets down in the deep water. And while Simon Peter was reluctant, he went ahead and followed directions. And lo and behold, they ended up with nets so full of fish that the nets began to break. And the boats, as they hauled the fish in, began to sink. They ended up filling two boats full of fish. What a picture of overwhelming generosity. Let me name a couple more. Six stone jars of incredible wine at a wedding party. That's around 150 gallons of wine. How about feeding thousands upon thousands of listeners from a few fish and a few loaves of bread with 12 baskets, many baskets left over, this picture of abundance and overwhelming generosity. When Jesus' disciples were wondering how on earth there would be enough to feed a crowd of thousands, Jesus says simply, let me illuminate for you the overwhelming generosity of the Father. And even more, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, which, which comes in, in the very next couple chapters in Matthew, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, we have this picture of God feeding the birds who do not sow or reap. This picture of God clothing the lilies of the valleys in his overwhelming generosity. Jesus illuminated for a world who had been unable to perceive it, the generosity of God. And how important is this? So this truth that I can cling to when I'm tempted to become anxious about having enough is right here. And here's some real talk. Okay, Robin and I have spent the last six months renovating a 100-year-old house. And that's expensive. And whatever we had saved and whatever we had set aside for the home, yup, spent. And literally, the day after phase one of our renovation passes inspection, that main stinking pipe that it carries all the water from the bathrooms and all the water from the kitchen out to the street, it cracks wide open from top to bottom. And I'm like, this is, this is thousands. Like in that moment, there, there are two thoughts that can, that can rule my brain. One, this old thought. We don't have money for this. Resources are, are growing more and more scarce. Stop giving and start keeping. Make sure you've got enough for you before you start giving again. That's thought one or thought two based on what Jesus has illuminated by his life and his teachings. I have a generous father in heaven and there will always be enough. This is a surprise, but it's not too big a surprise for my generous heavenly father to handle. I can continue to be radically generous because my God is generous and there will always be enough. Jesus came to illuminate the overwhelming generosity of God so we can 
so it can inform how we think and how we live. That's number one. Number two, Jesus illuminated what God really wants. And I don't have a lot of time for this one, but just quickly, being in the dark about this one has caused tremendous anxiety for humanity. And, and it has resulted in some pretty ugly things being confused or in the dark about what God is really after. Here's the old thought. What God wants from humanity is obedience and reverence and right behavior and the perfect following of the law. So what's the consequent direction of life? Striving and trying and rule following, kind of. Hierarchies about who is more acceptable in God's sight according to their rule following and who is, and who is holier. Questions, anxiety-inducing questions like, am I doing enough good? Have I avoided enough sin? Have I been praying enough? Am I, am I pleasing to God based on this old thought about what I believe God is really after? But here's the new thought, according to the truth illuminated by Jesus, that what God is really after is our hearts, that God is ultimately after our affections. He's after a relationship with us that is marked by mutual delight in each other. What he really wants is for us to delight in God in the same way God delights in us because we are his children and we are his creation. Jesus illuminated this truth with his teaching and with his life. He said, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. He said, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees, dot, dot, dot. He says, let the children and all their messiness come to me and pile on me and delight in me because that is what I'm after. Zacchaeus, I must come to your house today to have a meal so we can be in relationship. Jesus illuminated what God really wants. That's number two. Number three. Jesus illuminated the true value of every human. This is maybe the thing humanity was most confused about, that, that God values some humans more than others, and some humans could be treated with disdain, that some humans should be exalted and praised, and other humans could be discarded and abused. Well, Jesus looks at humanity, and he looks humanity in the face, and he says, no, each one bears my image. Those with more, those with less. Those born into this family, those born into that family. Those born on this side of the river, those born on that side of the river, all bear my image, all infinitely valuable to me. I think of his parable of the lost sheep. Man, which one of you, you have a 100 sheep, but you have 99, but you're gonna go out and you're gonna find the one that is yours, that belongs to you. His story of Lazarus, the beggar, his parable of the lost coin, his insistence, in allowing the children to play on him. His admiration for women who would present themselves as learners from him alongside the men. His willingness to touch the diseased and defend the weak. His decision to build his kingdom and advance his movement with fishermen and tax collectors. His adamance that in the kingdom of heaven, the greatest among us will be the least. And how about his ultimate final statement about how much I'm worth to God and how much you're worth to God when he demonstrated his love for us by sacrificing his very life. How powerful for me to cling to this truth. When my brain floods with cortisol and adrenaline and I become anxious because I'm confused, because I'm confused about where my value comes from. When I'm fearful that my worth is based on what I produce or how well I please others or how much I make or the things that I have or the grades that I earn or the clothes that I wear. 
No. My worth comes from the image of God that I bear. I have infinite worth. And it is pronounced over my life by God himself, who is unchanged and in relentless pursuit of me and all his children. That gives me peace. That thought chases away the cortisol in my brain and gives me a burst of serotonin and dopamine, and it's exciting. And Jesus illuminated the value of every human by his life. That's number three. Number four, Jesus illuminated the true nature of death. And even more so, the weakness of death. And this is maybe the most important one for a humanity that is unclear about what happens when they die. How terrifying is that uncertainty? It's no wonder we place survival as a top priority. It's no wonder self-preservation drives such a high percentage of human behavior. It's no wonder we so often place our needs above the needs of others. But Jesus, as he presented himself to over 500 of his followers in his glorified body after having risen from the dead, allowing his followers to touch him, to hear him, to place their hands on him and their fingers in the holes of his hands. Jesus illuminated life eternal. Jesus illuminated the true nature of death. Jesus illuminated the true nature of death so that we can live, so that we can live fearlessly and generously and self-sacrificially, and we can know that we will be living eternally. That we can be free from this old thought that enslaved us that says you must preserve and you must be safe and you must fear this thing. Jesus illuminated the true nature of death. Finally, Jesus illuminated what it means to be truly human. Now, this is a central claim of Christianity, that humanity was brought into being to reflect God perfectly and engage God joyfully. And while humanity failed at doing this, Jesus did not. Hebrews 1.3 says that the Son, Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. Now, with this illumination comes a thought and a truth that literally saved my life when I was neck deep in a season of most severe anxiety. Three years ago, I made the biggest mistake of my life and left my full-time position here at Grace to begin working on a doctorate in clinical psychology. I moved my family to Virginia Beach and for the next year lived a arguably reckless life, basically inviting a cortisol and adrenaline tsunami to hit land and wreak havoc on my mental health. I began attacking this program to the tune of sometimes 12 to 15 hours per day. I kept a part-time job on top of that that required focused effort upwards of 12 or more hours per week. To support this effort financially, Robin had to take on a full-time job that required her to travel in the fall and the spring upwards of three to five days per week, which really messed with our kids emotionally. Didn't matter how much I reminded them that mommy was just on a work trip. All they knew in the moment was that she wasn't there. 
My kid who loved school the most was having a hard time just getting on the bus. Oh, and that was stressful. That was so hard. In addition, in order to make this work childcare-wise, we moved in with my in-laws, Robin's parents. We moved in with my in-laws. Now, you want to test your brain to see if it produces cortisol? Move in with your in-laws. You will know very quickly if that functionality is working. Now, I'm just kidding. Like, honestly, Robin's parents are absolutely amazing. I'm very blessed by them constantly. But living with another family stretched us. Finally, on top of all of those factors, all of that stress, I experienced a a maximum stress-inducing incident with part of my family back in Ohio, and that was it. Like, my brain had enough. It kicked into a cortisol-producing overdrive that that was the end-all, be-all for all overdrives, and I began having multiple panic attacks every day. I was in flight or flight and I couldn't get out of it. For three weeks, I could barely eat and I ended up losing like 15 pounds. Thanks to COVID, I've gained it back and then some, but this was awful. I couldn't eat. I couldn't focus on my schoolwork and I needed to withdraw from the program. I was suffering from irrational fears about who I was becoming and where my life was headed. I ended up needing to see a doctor for a medical intervention as well as a therapist for a psychological intervention. But as I look back on that season, there was one thing that got me through. There was one thing that brought true peace to my mind. One thing that was my lifeline in the midst of debilitating irrational fears about who I was becoming and where my life was heading. It was a promise. A promise that has true substance because of this thing that was illuminated by Jesus. You see, Jesus showed humanity what it means to be truly human. To be human free from sin and free from fear. To be able to live a perfectly righteous life, a perfectly loving life. To be faithful and patient and just generally good. He illuminated what that life looked like. And then he promised this, to transform us into his likeness. And that's a promise I cling to, that I could be recreated into being human the way he was human and the way I was meant to be human. And that promise meant everything to me because it reminded me that I know how my story ends. And my story was not going to end in disaster. My story did not end according to any of those irrational fears I had about who I was becoming. But my story ends in transformation to Christ-likeness. It ends with me being faithful as a husband and loving as a dad and kind to the world and just good, how Jesus was good. Paul calls this transformation the good work of the Holy Spirit. And he says in Philippians 1, 6, that we can be confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that is the promise I clung to. I clung to, I clung to. I am confident that you began a good work in me, Lord, and you will finish it. Thank you, Jesus, for taking on flesh and living the life you did, for illuminating for all of humanity these key things that enable us 
to have a new set of strongest thoughts that can provide the direction for the way in which our life can move. Thank you for illuminating the overwhelming generosity of God, for illuminating the truth about what God really wants from us, for illuminating the inherent worth of every human being, and for illuminating the true nature of death here on earth. Finally, thank you, Jesus, for illuminating what it means to be truly human so we can worship you and in that become truly human. So in closing, here's what I want you to do. Position yourself for illumination. Position yourself to see things in a new way and obtain a new set of strongest strongest thoughts that can inform the direction of your life. Position yourself to see new things in a way and have a new set of strongest thoughts that can inform the direction in which your life is moving. And how do you do that? Well, there are lots of ways. Here are just some easy ones. Uh, First, join a group. Commit to engaging community that wrestles with the life of Jesus and what it meant for humanity. Ideally, find a group that has members who don't think exactly like you do. Next, keep coming to church and keep asking questions about faith. Develop a private practice of worship through prayer and and music and journaling with God. These are ways you can position yourself for illumination. And finally, something you can do right now. You can take communion with us. And actually, if you need to hustle and and grab a cracker and some juice, do that now. Because communion is a powerful practice of symbolically taking Jesus into our lives. Through communion, we identify with Jesus and say, my story, my story, Jesus, is wrapped up in your story. And I'm grateful because your story is good. To lead us In communion, I'm just going to read from 1 Corinthians 11, where Paul instructs the church in this practice. Paul writes in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 11, he says this, The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So we can take the bread and break it, the body of Christ broken for you. Paul continues saying, in the same way, after supper, he took the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we'll do this together. We'll take the the cup and drink the blood of Christ poured out for you. Will you pray with me? Lord, our gratitude for all that you have done is immeasurable. Lord, not only did you take on flesh and live the life we couldn't live and illuminate for all of humanity truths that can give us a new set of strongest thoughts to guide our living. 
Lord, you, you suffered immeasurably to demonstrate your love for us. And you conquered death and revealed your glorified self to us so that you could remove all doubt for us about where our lives are headed. Lord, we ask that in this moment, your spirit would do what only you can do and you take those seeds of truth as they're scattered onto the soil of our hearts and you would do something miraculous with them. You would help, you would help those truths find good soil in our hearts. They would take root and they would grow and they would produce fruit in our lives. Lord, for, for all of us, for any of us struggling with anxiety right now, as we look for ways to overcome it, Lord, guide us to resources. Help us find the doctors for the, the right medical interventions and find the therapists for the right psychological interventions. But Lord, here in, in this moment, help us come across illuminations by your life that would become a powerful spiritual and cognitive intervention for us. And we would find ourselves freed from anxiety living with a new set of strongest thoughts, truths that your life speaks over us. Lord, thank you, thank you, thank you. We love you. We acknowledge that we can only say that and confess that because you loved us first. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.